All right, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your great mercy toward us. And just we're uh, we're so undeserving, and uh, you just keep blessings upon us. And God, I just pray that um, that as we continue to to study your Word, that you would be with us, that you would give us understanding, that you would uh, cause these things to to go to our heart. God, that we would be a people who truly seeks to um, to follow you, to obey you, uh, to do it from the heart, not simply as a as a show, uh, not simply to receive the praise of men, uh, but God, that you would truly uh, just continue the the cleansing work inside of us, that we would be uh, faithful children of yours. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. All right. So we're continuing our study of the life of Christ. Does anybody remember where we were last time? Jesus had gone to Jerusalem finally for the uh, the final time. Um, he'd gone up um, what we uh, refer to as uh, as Palm Sunday. Um, and he'd entered with shouts of Hosanna and, uh, and he'd gone into the temple and looked around and then he and then he left again uh, just just outside of town just to just back to Bethany well, this morning uh, we're gonna continue we're gonna look at uh, most of the rest of the week uh, that progresses um, before the before the actual Passover arrives um, so beginning in uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 12, uh, says that on the following day when they came from Bethany, uh, he was hungry, speaking of Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, just to stop there for a second, um, just looking at this in isolation, it's probably kind of confusing, but I'm assuming that uh, most of you are at least somewhat familiar with, with this. So does anybody have any idea what's going on here? I mean, it just looks like Jesus is hungry and doesn't see any food, so he gets mad. Is that what's going on? He's going to use this as a parable. Okay. Is that, is that what you're asking, or possibly? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of you. If I'm no, that's that's fine. So, uh, so yeah, he's he's. Uh, well, let's just let's let's skip ahead. We're going to come back um, to um, verses 15 through 19, but we'll jump ahead to verse 20 here. Um, and uh, so. Uh, as they passed by in the morning, so this is the next day, so they passed by in the morning, uh, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, 
uh, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, uh, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And uh, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. So there we see that you know Jesus uses this as an illustration. So, I mean that's what you were you were referring to. So what's yeah. what's the what's the illustration he has there? illustration of faith and mm-hmm. the power of true complete faith yeah yeah it's I mean they're they're like they're marveling that he's done this thing and he's like basically this is nothing um, you can you can do far more than this um, with uh, with faith um, is there anything else you think that's going on here uh, beyond simply the the object lesson of faith. That's something that might be somewhat debatable, just because it's not ever explicitly stated in the text. Do you think there might be any kind of other lesson that's going on with uh, with what the what's going on with the fig tree? Oh, um, because. I know we haven't read it, but because the the cleansing of the temple is in between the beginning and the mm-hmm. end of that object lesson, mm-hmm. there there could be a connection between the object lesson of victory being uh, tied to the cleansing of the temple. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. I think I think uh, I think you're you're right. Um, I think it goes a little further than that. Um, well, even Israel's lack of faith, mm-hmm. you know, and just not receiving the Messiah mm-hmm. and stuff. And so he's really calling down his judgment. That's probably more what I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking of it being sort of more like a parable, but I guess okay, yeah. probably is a better I, I wasn't way sure. To put I wasn't it. sure. That was where I was going. And, but okay. I, thought, I thought since you said that Jesus was going to use it as a parable, I thought, well, maybe you're talking about what's more explicit. Yeah, no, so. I, I was thinking more uh-huh. the judgment that, yeah. you know. That he proclaims. So. Yeah, and I, and I think as we as we go through the, the the events that happen this week, it to understand it that way fits very well. I've I've heard people say, well, Jesus only uses it as a illustration of of the power of faith, and so we shouldn't take it to mean more than that. But I think if you if you look at it, especially the way Mark does it, where he puts the cleansing of the temple in between, he's the only gospel writer that does that. But just I mean, in a sense, it makes sense to put the whole illustration together. But Mark. I think really draws us to the fact that that's what's going on. That like basically the, the fig tree represents the people of Israel, and that they were supposed to be bearing fruit, um, and they weren't, and they receive a curse because of that. Um, and I think we're, that's going to be borne out as we continue to to look at the at the things that happen here during these interactions Jesus has with the religious leaders. Any other thoughts on that? Let's, let's go ahead and look at the cleansing of the temple. So that's uh, back in verse 15. 
Uh, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Uh, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because uh, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of uh, they went out of the city. So, so what's going on here? Jesus is uh, cleansing the temple. What's what's his motivation for that? they were using the temple more as a place of, of profit mm-hmm. than they were uh, a place of prayer, as he says Yeah, in his quote. Yeah. They're, something as important as the worship of God had become for them just a, just a way that they could make an extra buck. Um, so they weren't really concerned with the holiness of the temple. Um, they were just concerned with, like, well, how can, how can we make things go well for us? And that's kind of a theme we're going to see with a lot of the denunciations that Jesus has for the the religious leaders um, is just not really true heartfelt worship. Now, obviously, the uh, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're they're pretty concerned about Jesus. I mean, it says there that uh, you know that they they uh, they were seeking a way to destroy him. Um, they, they, it's like it, and we've already seen this. You know, they've already they're planning to kill Lazarus. They want to kill him. They're just really concerned about getting rid of this troublemaker, um, and so they begin um, trying to to bring that about. So flipping over to Matthew um, chapter twenty one, and look at verses twenty three through twenty seven here. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 23. And when he entered the temple, and this is, again, the, the next day after he had cleansed the temple, uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Uh, Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John... From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what are they trying to do here? Why are they asking Jesus this question? Because they, uh, I mean, we've seen already multiple times that they've tried to trap him mm-hmm. in what they're saying. And if, if they can get him to blaspheme and claim to be the Christ mm-hmm. or claim to have the authority of God, mm-hmm. then it seems at least that they're trying to trick him or trap him into saying something that could uh, give them a right or a reason to arrest him or 
punish him. Right, yeah. yeah. Say, uh, also, if you look at when they're kind of conspiring on the side, you go, well, hold on one second, let me, well, let's talk about it. <laughs> right. You very much get the sense that they think through these things very carefully. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we say this answer, this is going to go badly. If they say this answer, so with a little leeway, you could imagine that they would be saying, they're thinking the same way about what he might answer. Well, if he says this, uh-huh. we can do this. If right. he says this, we can take the people and turn right. this way. Uh-huh. So you, you can very much see the wheels turning of how they might use uh-huh. this against him. Right. Yeah. And and presumably they're they're you know they're they're afraid of the crowd. It's you know it's already stated this. You know they're concerned. Um, and they, you know they state it here again, uh, but. They, I think they want to like get Jesus to say something where the crowd is going to turn against him because they're just afraid to do anything against him because the fra- the crowd's going to be behind him, and so they're again they're they're trying to trap him some way, but then of course he just kind of flips it around. It's like well here here's a question, and then they have to consider well now the crowd's going to turn on us if we say the wrong thing. Um, or if we say the other thing, then we're just going to look like fools. Because it's like, if we agree with the crowd, then you're like, well, then why didn't you believe him? So Jesus just kind of turns it on his head and puts them in a situation where they're afraid to, to really say much because of the crowd. And of course, Jesus doesn't just leave it at this. Um, continuing in verse 28, he says, What do you think? A man had two sons... And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, uh, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So here we have Jesus presenting a parable, and it's very much tied to the discussion that just went before. Um, so we've got these two sons here. Who, who do you think the two sons represent? First son who says that, uh, let's see which get the right order here. First one says, I'm not going to do your will, but then he does it. And then the second one says, I will, and then he doesn't do it. Any idea who they represent? Well, the second would be uh, probably the religious leaders and, and, you know, maybe Israel as a nation, you mm-hmm. know, just that they said that they follow God and yet mm-hmm. they demonstrate that they don't. And yet the other son would be probably those that they would look down upon, mm-hmm. those as sinners, right. you know, that they don't follow Christ and yet they hear the gospel and they respond to that. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you have the... Basically, the the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners that they're saying, I'm not following God. And then, you know, then Jesus comes and and calls them 
and they do. They do follow God. They do obey his will. But then you have the religious leaders who are basically saying, yes, we follow God. We're doing everything he said. But then Jesus shows up, and they're like, we're not following you. Um, And even when they see the tax collectors and prostitutes turning to Jesus, even then they still don't repent. They're they're very much like the the son who, in the end, did not uh, obey the will uh, of his father. Um, and Jesus continues here with another parable, um, being in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants uh, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Uh, Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Uh, This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken in, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they had, uh, because they held him to be a prophet. All right, so we have this parable here, and at the end of it, the uh, the Pharisees figure out it's talking about them. So, so how does how does this uh, how does this parable apply to them? I mean, it's quite literal in its translation mm-hmm. if you look at it. Uh, right, they're the stewards of God's people at this point. Mm-hmm. God sends his son, and they want to kill him mm-hmm. so that they can have the kingdom to themselves. Yeah. It's pretty much exactly as yeah. Jesus puts it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's, you know, and God's been sending them, you know, prophets for for generations uh, to, to call them from their evil ways, and they just refuse. Um, and then ultimately Christ comes. You know, this is before Christ is actually killed. But, you know, he's basically saying, this is what's going to happen, you know. You know, you're going to put the son to death. Um, so, yeah, just a, just a clear, you know, trans, or just, just a clear parallel there, what's going on. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I think when we look at the, at the cursing of the fig tree, um, that that's, you know, that that's also what it's talking about. Because it's, it's very much the same idea. It's like... Uh, the the owner of the vineyard is sending you know expecting to get the the fruit of the vineyard um, and he's not given it it's the it's kind of the same picture of going to the fig tree expecting to get fruit and not finding any um, and bringing judgment as a result 
Any other thoughts about that? I mean, that's a that's a pretty straightforward one. So it's actually really similar to uh, uh, a passage in Isaiah where Israel is presented as a as a vineyard and God building a hedge around it, and um, so definitely something that that probably helped them to see just exactly how it was pointing to them. But this doesn't cause them to give up. Um, you know, they they have already tried to to get Jesus a little bit, and you know, he's basically just outwitted them um, and caused the, their their attempts to trap him to fail. Um, but they they're still going to try. So um, in chapter in, in Luke chapter twenty, uh, beginning in verse twenty. Um, it says, so they watched him and sent out spies who pretended to be sincere. So at this point, they've kind of given up the direct approach of let's, let's go talk to him. It's like, okay, let's let's find somebody that he doesn't know that it's somebody trying to trap him. Um, but anyway, uh, who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority uh, and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but teach, uh, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful, lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Uh, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer became silent. So what was the what was the motivation for this question? Any thoughts? Well, it wasn't even to uh, turn them over to the religious leaders. It was really to turn them over to the civil leaders. Yeah. So they had more in mind than just, you know, shutting him up, you know, from an ecclesiastical perspective. They were probably thinking more like prison or something like that. Yeah. Let's let's get him in trouble with the Romans. Yeah. That's that's the way to do this. Um, So what what were they hoping would happen? I mean, how, how do they... I mean, as as what uh, Tim mentioned earlier, you know, as they're as they're weighing out, it's like, well, if he says this, we got him this way. If he says this, we got him that way. What? How would we apply that to to this situation? I think I would say I think in that day and age, I think many of the uh, many of God's people would have resented the Roman rule mm-hmm. over them. Right. So if Jesus says we should follow them, they're not going to look too favorably on that. They were hoping that the Messiah would be someone to overthrow the Romans mm-hmm. and restore right. Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. If he says the opposite, that we shouldn't and we won't pay them their taxes, then the religious leaders can work with Rome mm-hmm. to get him in prison, like you yeah. said. Yeah, exactly. So if he said, that's what I was kind of getting from the passage. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's like, yes, we should pay taxes. To Caesar, then well, they're going to get to upset all the Jews that, 
you know, that are wanting to fight against Rome. But if you say, no, we shouldn't, well, then you're going to get in trouble with the Roman government. So, what you know, either he's going to lose face with the people who are following him, or he's going to get in trouble with the with the civil authorities. So they think it's just a it's a done deal. We got we got this we got this uh, got this locked up. He he can't he, he answers yes he's in trouble. If he answers no he's in trouble. And then what does Jesus do? Yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he answers in a way that it's like they just can't really can't really do anything. And it, you know it says. Uh, marveling at his answer, they became silent. They're just like, what do we do with that? Um, but of course, they're not satisfied. This like, okay, you know, we, we, we can still get him somehow. So at this point, the Sadducees uh, get involved in the in the debate. Um, so Matthew 22. Uh, verse 23 uh, the same day the Sadducees, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying teacher Moses said if a man dies having no children his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother now there were seven brothers among us the first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother so to the second and third uh, down to the seventh after them all uh, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So here the the Sadducees are, are um, coming and questioning him, and the Sadducees it tells us right here they don't they don't believe in the resurrection. They say there's no resurrection. So why do the Sadducees ask this question? Because they're asking him in the resurrection, how's how is this going to work? Again, it seems it seems like they're attempting to trap because if he says, I mean, depending on his answer, they can say, well, logically, according to stay uh, lawful to follow Mosaic law, uh, the resurrection can't happen because she can't be married to seven husbands. Mm-hmm. Um, or I mean, they're they're trying to essentially trap him in a logic puzzle. Uh, and he, again, he's able to turn it around and say, well, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, as saying, our earthly unions, our, our, our earthly ties are, are different. They're changed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I kind of suspect that this was actually just like one of the, like, if you had like a pamphlet of, Sadducee, you know, arguing points. This was one of their main arguments that they had. It's like, man, all those people believe the resurrection. This is that. This is that question they just can't answer, because it's like, well, you know, we we know that the law of Moses says, you know, that you know, if uh, if the husband dies and you know there hasn't been a, a child yet, you know, then the brother's supposed to marry him. So it's like, oh, yeah, we got this situation where if there's a resurrection, then we're gonna have, you know, seven guys married to the same woman, and that just can't be right. So. 
clearly the resurrection can't even be real because uh, it just doesn't make sense. Um, but of course, Jesus, you know, he's he's got a little more insight about what it's like in the resurrection, um, and straightens him out and says, you know, those those marital relationships are just they're not going to be uh, at least not going to be the same way that they were um, in this life. Um, but then he even puts it back on them and says, I can prove the resurrection. Um, and just proves it by quoting scripture that, you know, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, any other thoughts on that? So they're not doing too, uh, they're not doing too well in trying to, uh, trying to trap Jesus. Um, of course, again, Jesus isn't content to just let them alone, uh, giving him the hard questions. Um, in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you think, uh, or, yeah, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Uh, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So why do you think Jesus asks this question? And maybe to be more specific, um, was he denying that he himself was the son of David? Any thoughts? I know this one can be a, a little bit tricky. Well, he didn't. He didn't deny it in the sense that he was a descendant of David. He was of the line of David. I just think about Matthew's genealogy, you know, and how it, it proves mm-hmm. that connection. He's mm-hmm. not denying yeah. that. Yeah. And if we think back to uh, Bartimaeus, called out to him. I think, I think that was last time we saw that. You know, Bartimaeus called out to him, "Son of David," um, and Jesus didn't say, "Oh no, I'm not the son of David." Um, so clearly, I mean, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the son of David. So what's going on here? Why is why is Jesus bringing this up that almost sounds like he's saying that he's not the son of David? What What is he really doing? Any thoughts, Tim? I think, and I might be completely off base here, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's, the answer that they gave was that, to simplify it, he was a son of man. Okay. And he's trying to get at the fact that he would, that the Christ would be a son of God. Okay. Yeah. While coming from a lineage of man, he uh-huh. is the son of God. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is that is basically what he's he's going after. I don't think he's at all trying to deny that he is the son of David, but he's trying to get them to realize who the son of David would have to be to fulfill all of what Scripture says. Yes, the Christ is going to be uh, the son of David, but if you're thinking in terms of 
well, he's just going to be a man who is descended from David. Um, then, well, what do you do with this other scripture? Um, and so he's, I think he's, he's trying to push them to understand that's like, look, if you're going to follow all of the messianic pro, uh, promises in scripture, then in some sense, the son of David also has to be the Lord of David and therefore pointing to his divinity. Well, now we're going to hop over to um, Matthew 23. Um, and this is a, a lengthy section um, that has a lot of harsh words for the scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to kind of walk through a bunch of these things here. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 23. uh, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. For you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, I mean, this is pretty straightforward, but what, what is it that, the, uh, that the, the scribes and Pharisees do that Jesus is warning against? It's, it's really all for the praise of men, right? Yes. That's what they're after. They're not after the praise of God. They're after the praise of men. And so that's really what they're seeking in all the things that they do. Continuing in verse 13, uh, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So what's the great sin that Jesus is uh, denouncing them for here?
Because here it's not just uh, them, you know, trying to get the praise of men. They're doing something else. They're, they're teaching and corrupting the next generation worse than they are. Right, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not content with condemning themselves by their own hypocrisy. They're going and they're they're trying to get other people to be just as bad as they are. So um, it's pretty pretty serious. They're they're uh, basically barring the way uh, for other people. I mean, and that's that's largely what you see with the way that they're interacting with Jesus. Is they're they don't they, you know they see the crowds are following Jesus. They want to stop that. Um, you know they could just say, well, we don't care about him and just go about their business. And let the crowds follow him, but you know they're they're upset that the crowds are following Jesus. They want to stop anybody from accepting what Jesus says. Jesus continues in verse sixteen: "Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing; but if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater?" The gold of the temple, or uh, the the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits on it. So what were the scribes and Pharisees doing in the swearing of oaths? Uh, It it very much is... uh, but reading this, it's the, the child, well, I didn't promise. I'm sorry? It's the child who would say, well, I didn't promise, so I don't have to do it. it, it it's, right. They're trying to make it so that, well, I, I didn't swear on this part of the temple, so I'm okay. Whereas it, it, it's not explicitly stated, stated right here, but Jesus has said, it's one, no, your yes be yes, your no be no. Mm-hmm. The Ten Commandments is that thou shalt not lie. It's right. not a... It's not, they've tried to split it up so much that they can weasel their way in and out of whatever they want to, rather than just a straight no, it's yes or no, and you need to keep your word. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like saying, well, I, you know, I had my fingers crossed. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, uh, it, I mean, it, it definitely gives the impression that these people are, they're going around saying, well, I, I swear by the temple. And... You know, and then when somebody says, "Well, you you swore by the temple. Why why didn't you keep your your oath?" I say, "Oh well, I, I swore by the temple. I didn't swore, swore by the gold of the temple." Um, so, I mean, pretty pretty bad there. What's the what's what's wrong with their reasoning? I mean, other than the fact that they're just like you know trying to get out of you know doing what they said. They're just in terms of their reasoning about what's important. What's what's wrong with their reasoning? Well, it's, it, it appears that everything that is of earthly value, that's what they're mm-hmm. considering most important, and yet the things that God has said is as important, they see as more insignificant. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's They're focusing on the things that are of earthly value. 
And it's like, well, is there really anything special about gold? You know, isn't it isn't it the temple that matters? Is there is there really anything special about uh, you know a, a dead goat? You know, or is it because it's being offered up on the altar of God? Um, so yeah, they just have a, a backwards view of how to even evaluate what's important. Continuing on um, verse uh, 23. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So how would you describe what they're what they're doing here? Again, their focus is on the wrong thing. It's the public viewing of people can see that I'm tithing these things, whereas they're they're not being faithful in things of justice, mercy, and faithfulness to God. Right. Um, it, it's. Uh, Again, parallels between other parables and such, but straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel is pointing out the speck in your brother's eye while there's a log in your own. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's focusing on the wrong thing. Right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, they're they're like, look, I I really obey the law. You can tell I'm super holy because I make sure that like all my little garden herbs, I take ten percent and I give that to God. Uh, but but yet they're they're being wicked in their relationships with their brothers, um, and you know it, it's very much is like oh yeah I'm I'm not drinking this until I strain that gnat out I don't I don't want to be drinking a gnat, but then you know it's like there's a camel in their in their cup of wine, and they're just they're willing to drink that because um, they're they're placing the the importance on the wrong thing. Now is um, were, were they were they wrong uh, to care about tithing? No, but it, it's wrong to put that above mm-hmm. the other commandments. And, and again, it's wrong to focus on the things that are viewed publicly. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I do want to point that out because some some people could like take this and misinterpret it and say, oh well, um, I can just ignore the little things. All that God cares about is the big things. Um, but. What does Jesus say specifically? He says, "You ought to have uh, these. You ought to have done without neglecting the others." So it's not like, "Oh, you you should have neglected the tithing and and taken care of justice and mercy." But it's like, "Yeah, you you should be tithing, and you should be taking care of justice and mercy." So all of God's commands uh, are important. So we don't want to. We don't want to flip Jesus's words around the wrong way and take it as Jesus saying we'll only care about the important things. But obviously the problem with the the scribes and the Pharisees was that they were ignoring the important things and just going for the small things that they could make a show about. Then continuing verse 25 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Uh, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, uh, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So again, very similar to a lot of what we've seen already. Um, so what's the what's the attitude that's expressed here by the by the scribes and Pharisees? Their, their focus is on presenting a good face, mm-hmm. presenting a upright, righteous, but presenting to others that it's not on working on their heart, their relationship with God, the obedience in their heart. It, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, I'm putting on a good face so that everybody thinks I'm doing fine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much just, um, thinking that really the only thing that's important is the outward, uh, the outward display. Now, I mean, there's the the way we I think the way we should understand this is there's two ways to have a good outward display. One is to focus on the outward display and you know just whitewash things, just make it make it appear that it's good. Or you can actually fix the things that are inside, um, which is something that's only a supernatural thing done by the Holy Spirit, and that that's going to automatically make the outside appear good as well. Um, and they're just all they care about is just the outward appearance. Now, is this something that's easy for the modern day church to do to, to fall into as well? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was even thinking we even want to take it a step further in one sense that there's some arms of the church that now will say, yeah, that's really wrong to whitewash things. Mm-hmm. So we need to be honest. We need to be genuine. We need mm-hmm. to be authentic. And so I'm going to confess the rottenness that's inside of me. I'm not going to do anything about it. Uh-huh. I'm not going to address it. I'm right. just going to be genuine enough to say it's there. Uh-huh. I'm going to continue to live in it and see how much more righteous I am. And it's like you still haven't right. repented of that. You're, right. you're no different than the person who's why wash it other than you know in the sense that you're not really dealing with the heart issue yeah but yeah that's that's a really that's a really good observation because you can really just take this and just twist it on its head because I mean when you think about what that what that person is doing in a sense they're doing the same thing it's just that their whitewashing is well look I'm not hiding my sin you yeah. can see <laughs> that I'm someone who's upfront about the fact that I'm a sinner um now, I mean, there's there's some truth to that, that we shouldn't just like, you know, just try to hide our sin. We should be willing to confess our sins to others. But if you just make it a merit, you know, that, well, I'm somebody who confesses my sin and doesn't pretend to be really holy. In a sense, you're pretending to be holy and that you're somebody who confesses their sins and doesn't doesn't hide it like a hypocrite. Um, so, but, yeah, again, the issue is what's going on in your heart. That's the that's the thing that you really need to address, and um, I mean there is I think just a just a huge temptation for for all people in the visible church you know as a whole, but you know even for true Christians there's a temptation to we want to look you know look holy to each other, um, and we really have to just you know just pray that God will give us a desire that like what's in our heart is gonna is what really matters. That that even if we look perfectly holy to everybody else, that we we really need to consider. Well, God sees past all of that. He knows exactly what's in my heart, 
and is he pleased with what he sees? And if not, then I need to get on my knees and pray that God will continue to change me and then, you know, and do do everything that we can that's in, that's on, in our power to actually be uh, the people that we should be, not just to display that to other people. I, I was just thinking about verse 26 when Jesus said, You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And I thought, you know, that almost just... Uh, demands a response of, but Lord, I can't clean the inside. What can I do? You know, almost pleading. And he's like, I can help you with that. You know, it's just like, it's a perfect setup, but they don't get it. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. But yeah, uh, we definitely are completely dependent on God to to clean the inside for us. Um, But but yeah, the, the scribes and Pharisees, at least... As a as a whole, seem to be just very focused on. We want to put on the outward appearance. We want people to think we're holy, um, and they're just not really concerned about um, what's going on in their own hearts. Uh, verse twenty nine. <clears throat> um, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who uh, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So, what is the claim of the scribes and Pharisees as they build tombs and decorate monuments? We will not repeat the sins of our fathers. We, we will. If you send us a prophet right now, we'll we'll recognize him for who he is. Uh-huh, yeah, it's like well, if we if we were alive back then, we wouldn't have persecuted those people. And yeah, and the implication is is like, well, if God sends his prophets now, then we're gonna we're gonna recognize him. We're gonna follow him. Do everything they say. Um, and what are they actively trying to do um, in their interaction with Jesus? Persecute the son of, not just the prophet, the son of God, the, the savior and messiah that they have been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're just like, yep, we're, we're going to follow any prophet you send, God. Oh, there's Jesus. Got to get rid of him. Got to kill him. <clears throat> He's raising people from the dead. I mean, you know, it's, this is just it's not going to work. Um so what is the uh, what does Jesus mean by his statement in verse 32? In case you don't have it open, it's uh, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Any thoughts? It makes me think of scales or I mean, 
I may be completely wrong, but just that's the filling out the measure of your father's. Is, are you comparing yourself to your father? I, I'm not sure if I'm just right. Yeah, I'm. I imagine it's it's. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I, I I mean, I think it's just kind of idiomatic of basically saying, "Be the children of your fathers, um, do the things your fathers did." Um, I mean, I think ultimately what he's saying is, in a sense, it's a prophecy. You're going to do just exactly what your fathers did. So just go ahead and do it. You're gonna you're gonna hand me over to be killed, just like they did. Um, I mean, he has he has. He hasn't been fooled by their uh, their statements as like, oh, we revere the prophets, we build their their uh, their tombs, and we you know decorate these monuments, and you know we would just follow God if we had the opportunity. Um, he's not fooled by that. He's saying, now you're you're gonna you're gonna put me to death too, so just go ahead and do it. Then in verse 37, uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so... Jesus is, um, I mean, he's just recognizing that this has been the the history of Israel uh, throughout the whole time. Um, I think he could make a case that where he's saying, um, I would have gathered your children together, um, that he's actually referring to a different group than than the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking about just the people, just the masses of people of Jerusalem. And then when he says, but you were not willing, it's basically what he's talking about before, where you find converts and you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. You shut the door that other people can't enter. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they're just unwilling that Jesus would come and gather the people of Jerusalem to him. Um and they've just they've set themselves against him and are preventing everyone from hearing and accepting the truth. We are just almost out of time. I I didn't want I was gonna read a little passage of the Olivet Discourse, but I'm just gonna mention it. I'm I'm sure all of you are at least somewhat familiar with the Olivet Olivet Discourse, but um, he talks there about as as his disciples are looking at the at the temple, and he tells them that not uh, you know that a time is going to come when it's destroyed, and not one stone is left on another. And he um, he speaks of of future things, and it's definitely a hotly debated thing. And I didn't even have any intention of getting into the different interpretations of that. That goes beyond what we want to do for this lesson. But um, but anyway, it's it's worth noting that that takes place basically in this period of time in the ministry of Jesus uh, where he predicts many things that um, that will come uh, uh, upon the earth at least from the perspective of where Jesus is um, in time 
uh, you know, whether you say it's it all happened in 70 AD or whether you say that some of it is still yet to happen. Um, but uh, that uh, famous speech is presented. Uh, and then in Matthew 26, uh, first three verses there, uh, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, uh, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders and the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name, see, sorry, I, let me back that up to verse 3. Okay, so ending the quote then, and it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the uh, palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, uh, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so they're definitely, like, they're, they're planning. It's like, we've got to get this, we've got to make this happen. But we still need to be very careful um, that it be not, that it not happen at the feast in the presence of the people. And then, um, also I want to quickly read Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6. Uh, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him uh, to them in the absence of the crowd. And so that's kind of their solution to this. It's like, we don't want to arrest him in the middle of the feast because there's going to be this crowd around, and it's just not going to go well. But then Judas is like, okay, I can I can make an arrangement where you can get to him not when he's surrounded by a crowd of people, and then you can get him. Um, and Judas is going to get paid for this. Um, and so that's, uh, that's where we're going to um, close it this morning, and then we will... We will pick up uh, there in the story uh, next time. Any final thoughts or questions? Okay, let's, uh, let's close the prayer. Heavenly Father, um, God, it is, uh, it is truly a, a challenge to us and how tempting it can be uh, for us to simply present uh, holiness to other people and not be concerned with our own hearts. And uh, God, I just pray that we truly, that, that we would always remember that you see into our hearts. You know when we are uh, just uh, presenting things as a show. Um, God, that we truly would uh, seek to be people who have uh, clean hearts on the inside. That the, that the outward show would just be a, a representation of what is in our hearts. And uh, God, we, as Pastor Rick said, it's, it's something we just can't do. We don't have the power to clean ourselves up. And God, we just pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would sanctify us. And God, we know that you have promised to do that. And so we just, we just pray that you would fulfill your promise to sanctify us, to make us uh, into the image of Christ. Uh, so that uh, your name would be glorified in your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.